0: Father God, you are full of mystery. Your ways are not our ways, your thoughts are not our thoughts. Through you we are blessed and in you we find rest. You are a God who cares deeply for his people. Lord God, your love is deeper than we can fathom and will never run out. No matter what we encounter, we can rest in the knowledge of your loving kindness. For it isn't based on what we do, but you give it and will not remove it from those that you call your own. Lord, we confess that we do not love you as we ought. We do not follow after you or your ways. This world offers us comfort, and we quickly look for the peace that it promises. And our tendency is to to grip what we have around us, our family, our possessions, or our health. The anchor of our soul is frequently the surroundings that we find ourselves in. Forgive us for looking to the things of this world in hope. Forgive us for escaping suffering through entertainment, through substances, through sex, or through relationships. Give us, your people, a heart and a passion for you and find our hope in you. Lord, thank you for being good to us, for giving us a hope that will not pass away. Through all that we go through, your faithfulness is our hope. And thank you, Lord, that that you will never leave us or abandon us and will hold us to the end. We also thank you this morning for other gospel-preaching churches in the greater Northwest. This morning, we thank you for Chapel Church in Puyallup, Washington. We thank you for Pastor Stephen Brucker and the elders there at that church. We thank you for their unity in the gospel, their encouragement, and even their joint membership in the NCN. May they continually preach the word of God at that church with faithfulness. And Lord, we pray that Stephen, Pastor Stephen, would be uh, guarded from being, becoming conceited at the work that he's doing there. But may he faithfully plod forward in the work of pastoral ministry. And finally, we pray for ourselves. Lord, we are grateful for the 15 members that joined us yesterday in membership here at Mission. This is a picture of your faithfulness For we do not bring people to you, but you draw them. Lord, give us the wisdom and the knowledge and the desire to love those who have joined us. May we care for them as you have cared for us, and may we love them as you have loved us. Give us hearts that are softened towards one another so that we, your people, can be uh, and, and do as you have commanded us to love each other. Finally, we pray for the preaching of the word. Lord, this morning we pray for Ryan, and thank you that uh, he is bringing the word to us, and may it grip our hearts with the reality of your faithfulness.
1: Amen. 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 Have a seat. Have a seat and open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7. We'll continue our study there. text for today is Revelation 7, verses 9 through 17. In this life, it's so easy to misplace our hope. Now, we misplace our keys, we misplace our reading glasses, our favorite coffee coffee cup or hydro Flask, but none of those have such a devastating impact as misplaced hope. I think it's because misplaced hope makes a promise that it can't keep. Whether it's the hope of a new job or a new relationship, We place in it an expectation that cannot be fulfilled, a promise that cannot be kept. Just ask the 15-year-old version of myself. Once I get my driver's license, everything's going to be great. Once I can wear contacts rather than glasses, everything's going to be great. Once my acne clears up, then everything. That's going to be great. That's going to work. Those hopes were misplaced. I imagined that they made a promise to me that they couldn't keep. Our text today is filled with promises, but these promises are made by the only one who can guarantee that they'll be kept. Let's read the text now. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, Forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. If you write down the titles to sermons, here it is. The Fulfilled Promises of God. In our text today, we're back in a familiar setting. We're back in the throne room of God. The same locale as Revelation chapters 4 and 5. And the band is back together. We see the angels are there. The 24 elders are there. The four living creatures are there. But there's a new addition, an innumerable multitude standing before the throne, clothed in white robes. Who are these who can stand before God and the Lamb? It's helpful here to remind ourselves of the non-linear nature of the book of Revelation. Our text begins with after this, but rather than reading after this to mean this is what happened next, we read After this, I looked, as this is what John saw next. The vision given to John was not laid out as a linear chronology of future events, but instead a progressive revelation, repeated themes of God's redemptive activity with each repetition. We saw this last week with the first half of chapter 7. If you missed the sermon last week, make sure you go back and listen to it after seeing the consequences of the sixth seal, John hears about the sealing and the numbering of God's people. But this is an act that occurred before creation, before the unleashing of the four horsemen, not something that happened before the opening, between the opening of the sixth and the seventh seal. God's knowledge of who belongs to him is from far before the judgments issued on a rebellious world. The sealing and numbering of the fullness of God's people happened before the opening of even the first seal of chapter 6. So our text today actually elaborates, fills in detail, and shows the conclusion of the fifth seal, which was opened in chapter 6. We're going to get used to flipping around Revelation today, so just turn back to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. When he, speaking of the Lamb, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Here in chapter 6, under the altar, we see martyrs worshiping, wearing white robes. They're told to rest a little longer while they wait for the full number of their fellow servants to join them. So, over in chapter 7, the vision builds off of that picture. We see that full number, a great multitude that no one could count. They are clothed in white robes, worshiping at the throne of God. Who are these who can stand before God? If you're taking notes, this is the first point of our text today. They are the beneficiaries of the fulfilled promise of deliverance the fulfilled promise of deliverance. The vision given to John draws deep from a well of Old Testament references to describe God's redemption of this multitude. The first is the description of this multitude as innumerable. The information is not provided to John as a simple data point. This description points us straight back to God's calling of Abraham. Look up on the screen together at Genesis 13, 16. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. This promise was delivered right after after God called Abraham to come out of all of the other nations to be the start of a nation that would be devoted to the true creator God. Again, a little later in Genesis, chapter 22, verse 17. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. In the letter to the Hebrews, it says, Abraham was as good as dead when this promise was made. It's the author's words, not mine, but from him innumerable descendants was, were born. So when this vision that we're reading today tells us that a great multitude is before the throne, this isn't just to impress us or state a simple fact. The vision is telling us that God's promise to Abraham has been fulfilled. He has multiplied his offspring to a number that cannot be measured. Now, when we hear the word offspring, it usually refers to direct lineage. So, the next phrase to describe the multitude before the throne of God and the Lamb illuminates a, a theological truth for us. Jesus, in giving this vision to John, takes the Abrahamic promise of, de, of uh, deliverance and promi- the Abrahamic promise and applies it to people from every nation, tribe, and language. This formula explains that this is the full ingathering of all of God's people across time and from around the world. The ethnic division is broken and all of the promises made to God's people in Israel are now given to God's church. This is further evidence that the 144,000 in the first half of Revelation chapter 7 represents all nations, not just ethnic Israel. The vision is comfortable taking symbols for Israel and applying them to all tribes and languages. This group and the glory of the vision is not limited to any specific group in time or genealogy. The first half of chapter 7 is God's promise of security in him, and the second half is the fulfillment of that promise. The vision given to John is viewing the same group of people from three different perspectives. Chapter 6, martyrs under the throne. The same people again in the first half of chapter 7, bearing the seal of God's promise, ready for battle. And then in the last half of chapter 7, they are the celebrating victors, praising God who has fulfilled his promise. Additionally, this multitude is standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Now, this is just too good. This is a a contrast between those facing the judgment of God and those experiencing the mercy of God. Revelation chapter 6, look at verses 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? This is a shocking contrast. One group, rather than calling on the true and living God, Is calling on the rocks to hide them from the face of the one seated on the throne. They acknowledge he's on the throne, but they refuse to serve him. They can't believe anyone can stand before God because they cannot imagine bowing to him. They would rather die than serve God. But the group in chapter seven remember, it's the same group that received the white robes when the fifth seal was opened. These white robes, a symbol of both purity and military victory, these are given to the martyrs, for they did not treasure their lives more than they treasured their Messiah. This group cannot imagine not bowing to God. They would rather die than reject God. This group is shown as a contrast to the group under the judgment of God, and they are also a parallel to the Lamb. As we've learned earlier in the series, this lamb is Jesus. In chapter five, remember, John is weeping because there's no one worthy to open the scroll. No one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth, is worthy to unfurl God's redemptive plan. But he's comforted by one of the elders. John hears him say, the lion has, Uh, The Lion of Judah has conquered. All right, a lion. Now we're talking. John turns, but he sees a lamb standing as though slain. This is the great paradox of the Christian faith. The lamb did not conquer through his might or use of force. Those are worldly tools. He trusted God to vindicate him. He conquered through enduring loyalty to the one on the throne. He trusted God would come through on his promise. Now move to chapter 7, and John hears the number of the sealed. It's a great army that's numbered. An army, all right, now we're talking. But when he looks, he sees a multitude. He sees martyrs worshiping God and the Lamb because they endured persecution and never renounced God. The army did not conquer through might or use of force. Those are worldly tools. They trusted God to vindicate them. They conquered through enduring loyalty to the one on the throne and the lamb. This group trusted that God would come through on his promise, and the vision shows that he did. The book of Revelation is not always the most accessible book in the Bible. The message can get obscured in the symbols. But here's something I want you to keep in mind as we continue through. The seeds of the rest of the book of Revelation are planted in the letters to the seven churches in chapters two and three. Or if you don't like gardening, the ingredients for the rest of the book are present in chapters two and three, the letters to the seven churches. Think back to the commendations the warnings, the exhortations, the rewards. The rest of the book builds on them. Those churches are the original audience for the book, and the rest of the book contains encouragement for them to remain faithful to God. Let's look at one, Revelation 3. Revelation 3, verses 4 and 5. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Here is the promise of God to the church at Sardis that if they endure through tribulation they will be clothed in white, with their name present with the Father and the angels. Does this sound connected to our text today in chapter 7? This is a vision of the fulfilled promise of God. The next imagery we're given are palm branches. The palm branches being waved are more imagery celebrating the work of God in the life of the people of God. The most familiar reference is Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem before his crucifixion. The crowds welcomed him by waving palm branches. Palm branches in the ancient Near East were a symbol of victory across cultures. Whether on coins, seals, pottery, the palm branch was universally connected to victory. Additionally, the reference to palm branches is an allusion to the Feast of Tabernacles given to Israel in Leviticus. This was a feast celebrated at the time of harvest. The Israelites would build shelters out of palm branches as thankfulness for God's provision and to commemorate the protection God gave them during their journey out of Egypt. This feast made clear who provided for the needs of Israel. The multitude standing before the throne is the harvest of God, and they have enjoyed God's sheltering hand during their own journey out of the world and into God's presence. Describing the people of God as a harvest and their gathering as a feast is a recurring theme that we'll see throughout the rest of Revelation. Next, we hear the multitude crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. And to the Lamb. These are the praises of the redeemed. Now, from an earthly perspective, this is strange. If they're alive before God and the Lamb in their throne room, then they died on earth. Later in our text, in verse 13, it says they came out of the great tribulation. What were they saved from if it wasn't from tribulation and death? These are the praises of believers who have been spared from the judgment of God and the Lamb that issued forth from the opening of the sixth seal. They recognize that the deliverance they really need is deliverance from judgment for their sin. They needed deliverance from being given over to the fate of all who oppose God. They needed deliverance from the fate of all who set themselves up as their own God. One of the tactics of the enemy is to make us numb to this need for our personal deliverance from judgment for our sin. We're tempted to place judgment on sin for basically anyone who isn't us, or we're tempted to downplay our sin, making ourselves the judge of what is right or wrong, or we seek to be delivered from discomfort in this life and hope that the next one will be comfortable as well. Here's an application question for you to consider during this week. What kind of deliverance or salvation are you seeking? This is a question for meditation so you can rid yourself of any hope placed anywhere other than in God and in his Lamb. The salvation offered by God is salvation from judgment for sin. It is salvation from the fate of all who oppose God or set themselves up as their own God. It is not deliverance from discomfort in this life. It can't be because salvation calls us to follow the lamb. In the lamb, that slain lamb, deliverance and salvation was made abundantly available to the multitude before the throne. So appropriately, loud, abundant praise came out from them. When your prayer and thought life is saturated with God's provision of deliverance, praises will fall abundantly from your lips. The book of Revelation is full of worship and has inspired worship music ever since it was written. The theme of the worthiness of the lamb is frequently repeated in the praise songs we sing. The imagery of God vanquishing his enemies, God's holiness, crowns. There's a relatively famous musical composition, Handel's Messiah. It has multiple direct references to Revelation. Think of the line from the chorus, For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. That's Revelation 19. Revelation 11. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Many of the hymns we sing, you've noticed the first verses start with our need for a savior or our earthly suffering, and they build to a crescendo of heavenly glory. Worship music that is inspired by revelation reminds us to put our hope in the promises God has made. And it is not a misplaced hope. This is what we're looking at here in the second half of Revelation seven. These praises are then echoed by the elders and the angels and the four living creatures saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. This praise is similar to what they offer in chapter five. They just start listing everything good and they ascribe it to God and the lamb. Now let's reread chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 to remind ourselves of what John is shown next. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's here that we gather our next point the fulfilled promise of redemption. One of the 24 elders asks John if he knows the identity of this multitude. In a roundabout way, John replies, no, but I'm sure you can tell me. The elder says that this innumerable group has come out of or through the Great Tribulation. Again, this section draws on Old Testament thinking about how the world will seek to keep the people of God from remaining loyal to God. Let's turn back to Daniel chapter 12. Should be relatively familiar, still fresh in our minds from last year. Daniel chapter 12. Give me an amen when everybody's there. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as has never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Then go down to verse 13. The angel says to Daniel, But go your way till the end. And you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. Here Daniel is given a message through a vision that God's people will suffer a time of great trouble, but at the end of it, they will rise to everlasting life. The message given to Daniel in verse 13 promises that he will rest. Think of the souls under the altar after the fifth seal was opened. They were told to rest. And he will stand in his allotted place. Think of our text today. With the multitude standing before the throne of God and the Lamb. This glory comes after tribulation. This message isn't just here in Daniel, though. Look on the screen at John 16.33. Jesus says to his disciples, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation but take heart i have overcome the world in multiple places jesus warns his disciples of the trouble that they would face for following him and he promises that they can have peace in the midst of the trouble because he has overcome on their behalf turn with me back to revelation chapter 2 we're going to look at some some more this is this is still jesus talking to his church I'll say it again. The ingredients for the rest of Revelation are present in the letters to the seven churches. So look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 3. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. The church at Ephesus found it necessary to endure persecution. At the end of that persecution, the promise they're given is to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. Now down to chapter 2, verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The church in Smyrna was warned by Jesus of upcoming suffering, testing, and tribulation. They found it necessary to remain faithful unto death. And when they did, the promise given to them was the crown of life. Now, verse 13, chapter 2, 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. The church at Pergamum is praised for remaining faithful, even when one of their own was killed for being a faithful witness. For endurance, they would be fed eternal food and given a new identity in God. The churches were experiencing tribulation, not escaping it. The warnings of coming persecution are coupled with promises of eternal blessing. These promises help Christians endure persecution, trusting that God will not fail them. Throughout time, the people of God have faced pressure to compromise their faith. This pressure can come in the form of overt oppression. The pressure can come from competing ideologies. The pressure can be in the form of life-threatening danger. The pressure can come in the form of a moment of temptation. There very well may be a time in the future where tribulation of Christians reaches a horrendous peak. But our reading of Scripture shows that it would be a continuation of something that has already begun. Since the multitude standing before the throne represents the fullness of God's people, this group is not limited to those who remained loyal to God through a future great persecution. Instead, they are all the people who have trusted in God to provide the endurance needed to remain faithful through their persecution. I don't know what the future holds, but chances are most of us will not have our earthly lives threatened for allegiance to God. But don't be mistaken, each of us are daily confronted with tests to our allegiance. When our worship of God gets in the way of a relationship, our allegiance is tested. When our obedience to God makes us an outsider in this world, our allegiance is tested. When we have to say no to something we want that's shiny on this side of heaven, our allegiance is tested. Our allegiance is constantly being tested. This is the tribulation that you are called to come out of. Here's a question worth examining. How is your faith being tested? Or to put it another way, what resistance are you feeling in your life? It may not feel worthy of being called the great tribulation, but it is, it is a trial placed in your life to reveal where your allegiance lies. Is it resistance to setting aside some certain sin? Are you feeling resistance to being identified or associated with Christ and his church? This is the tribulation that you are, being called, that you are called to come out of. There's a temptation in modern interpretation of this passage to identify when the great tribulation will occur. But that misses the point of this section. The important part is who the people identify with as they suffer. This is not the first time that blood has been used to represent identification. Think back to the Passover. There a meal of lamb was shared and the blood from the lamb was used to mark the Israelite doorposts. They were identified as God's people, and they were preserved from the plague of the death of the firstborn in Egypt. Here in Revelation 7, rather than putting the blood on the doorposts, though, they are washing their clothes in the blood. The vision takes identification with Christ to a whole new level. And in their identification with the Lamb, their souls are preserved. These are the people who identify with the Lamb, those who conquer through their endurance of suffering. They have not escaped from pain through a rapture. Instead, they remained faithful to the very end of their lives. Turn to Hebrews 10. This is our New Testament reading for today. We'll look at that again. Hebrews 10. Verses 32 through 39. This spells out a little more what we're talking about. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The exhortation here is that believers can endure suffering, public reproach, affliction. They can associate with prisoners. They can have their possessions plundered, all for the sake of their identification with Christ, and at the same time hold complete confidence that they will receive the great reward that God has promised the preservation of their souls. This is the promise of redemption that God has made and delivered on. Believers begin identifying with Christ with their baptism. We're going to do some baptizing here next week. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 6 that to be baptized is to be baptized into Jesus' death. The believer follows Jesus in his death so that they can follow him into his life. Here's one of the reasons that Jesus' resurrection is so important. He was raised as the first fruits of a whole harvest. His death and resurrection secured us for him, and we will follow the same path a faithful death and a glorious resurrection. Back in Revelation 7 again, I'm picturing these people who stayed loyal to God despite all kinds of persecution. And I can hear and see their joy as they wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb. In so doing, they identify with the Lamb and they are also purified. The need for purification to be in God's presence goes back to the time of Moses. Think of his need to remove his sandals when he approaches an interaction with God. Or later in Exodus, when the nation of Israel approaches Mount Sinai to make a covenant with God, They have to wash their clothes first as a symbol of their need for purification before going near his mountain. In the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, blood from sacrifices was sprinkled on the altar inside the temple to purify it so that God's presence would remain with the nation of Israel. But here in our text, the blood is used to wash the very robes of the people. The people were cleansed of any stain that would make them unfit for God's presence. They were not approaching a holy mountain or a holy place. They were in the presence of the Holy One. They needed to be purified before entering the very throne room of God. Look on the screen at how the Apostle Paul puts it in his letter to Titus. Titus two eleven through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, How did Jesus accomplish this? By identifying with us. He became a man, gave himself for us, he redeemed us, he identified it with our sin, and he died a death he did not deserve. When you sin, you earn death, and Jesus never sinned. The righteous blood that was shed in his death is that purifying force, making us fit for God's presence. The believer who endures is the same one who recognizes they have sin that needs forgiveness. And rather than striving through good works to make themselves good enough for God, as if that's a thing, they trust in God to cleanse them from their sin. The believer needs to hear this every day. It's far too easy to convince ourselves that we are righteous. Maybe God got me started, but I can finish this. That's an unimaginable lie to these saints praising God before the throne. Real question here, answer out loud if you're an extrovert. One word, who do they say salvation belongs to? Jesus, Jesus. God, the Lamb. They happily confess that they would not be there if it wasn't for God. Who was, he was true to his promise to redeem these believers from death the same way he redeemed Christ the Lamb. There's an application here for you this week. Am I trusting in my righteousness or in the righteousness of Christ? If this is new to you or you've not made that happy profession of your loyalty to God and the Lamb, then ask the person who brought you to tell you more, or find one of the pastors after the service. We would be happy to share more about what it means to identify with the lamb in his death, to be baptized, to join the church, and be given this promise of final redemption. Our final section today shows the final point, the fulfilled promise of provision. and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Again, the Old Testament influence on this vision that John records is thick. To serve in the temple of God positions the multitudes as priests of God. But rather than serving in a physical temple symbolizing God's presence, they're serving in the actual presence of God. What a gift the purifying death of Christ is. We aren't going to go to this Old Testament reference today, so I want you to read it this week. Read it side by side with Revelation 7. That's Ezekiel 37. Read Revelation 7, read Ezekiel 37, compare. It, that, it, the chapter in Ezekiel is famous as the dry bones passage in Ezekiel. See how many connections are being made when you read it side by side. Those who died are brought to life cleansing, David from the tribe of Judah, and Jesus, the Lion of Judah, a shepherd king, God dwelling in their midst. These are all things the vision draws on to explain the eternal spiritual truth that John passes on to us. The vision continues to draw on Old Testament references when it describes the comfort provided to these saints. Look at the screen for Isaiah 49.10. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. The multitudes before the throne here are experiencing the fulfillment of that promise. Consider this, though who is comforted by a promise that they will never hunger or thirst? Those who have hunger or thirst. Who is comforted by a promise that they will be sheltered from the wind and the sun. Those who do not have shelter from the wind and the sun. The great promise of these Old Testament texts is that those who suffer for the sake of their loyalty to God will one day be comforted, whatever that suffering may be. And John shares with us a vision of those promises being fulfilled. Those seven churches that Revelation was originally written to needed to hear that this comfort was waiting for them on the other side of tribulation. And who led them to that place of comfort? The lamb that is a shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd who lovingly cares for and corrects his sheep. To follow the shepherd means to follow the lamb. To, to follow his ways of enduring suffering for the sake of obedience, to be slain and standing. That is the only path that leads to the throne room of God and the comforts offered. And we need to hear this too. We need to be reminded of what God has actually promised to us. He has not promised ease and comfort when we follow the Lamb. He promised to guide us and to secure our steps as we encounter tribulation. So we have to listen carefully to what God has promised so we don't expect our lives to be different from what Jesus encountered on earth. That's our final application question for today. Have you misunderstood any of God's promises? There are so many ways you can do this. Maybe you place expectations on church that you shouldn't. Maybe you expect God to take away a sinful habit with a snap. Maybe you expect him to cure a relationship. What he's actually promised is through those tribulations, he will deliver you into his presence, redeem you from your sins, and guide you under his shelter so you can resist during tribulation. Today is a good day to realign your understanding of God's promises with what Scripture has presented to us. The vision given to John is meant to tell God's people that their hope is not misplaced. And this is true. This is what we all have in common here. We hold on tightly to the hope that God will fulfill his promises to us. Our gathering here and the songs we sing and the communion we are about to take is just a taste of a glimpse of the eternal glory we will see as we follow Jesus, who is the Lamb of God and our shepherd,
0: into his throne room. Amen.